This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's episode is brought to you by Kronos. Kronos provides HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support, motivate, and engage them. They put HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. Learn more about Kronos HR, payroll, talent, and time at kronos.com slash hrswagger. That's kronos.com slash hrswagger. Dan Pfeiffer worked for nearly 20 years at the Center of Democratic Politics, from the campaign trail to Capitol Hill to Barack Obama's White House. But it was Donald Trump's victory and Republicans' incessant aiding and abetting of Trumpism that radicalized his thinking. Now the number one best-selling author and co-host of Pod Save America urges Democrats to embrace bold solutions in order to defeat Donald Trump in 2020 and overcome the broader threat of Trumpism in the long run. It's all in his new book titled Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. And today, Dan joins me on the podcast to talk about the resurgence of Joe Biden's campaign, whether Bernie still has a shot at the nomination, and what we can learn from the failed campaign of Michael Bloomberg. He says the Democratic nominee will need to take the gloves off, rewrite the playbook, and focus on attacking Trump where he's strongest if he wants to win. However, Dan says Trumpism won't just die with the ouster of Donald Trump. And we talk about the long-lasting ramifications of the Trump presidency for the Republican Party and the nation as a whole. He recalls witnessing some of the early signs of Trumpism during his own time in the White House and how he says the Democratic Party was allowed to collapse during the eight years of Obama's presidency. According to Dan, voter expansion is the key to Democrats' victory in 2020 and beyond, He recommends a host of ideas to grow the voter rolls from granting statehood to the District of Columbia to enfranchising 16-year-olds and offers proposals for how to make the office of the president more resilient against corruption and abuse of power in the future. Plus, the right-wing media organization that's more dangerous than Breitbart and bigger than Fox News, the man Dan calls the worst person in American politics, hint, it's not Donald Trump, and Dan lets loose on his favorite punching bag, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Coming up with Pod Save America's Dan Pfeiffer in just a moment. Dan Pfeiffer is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Yes, We Still Can and co-host of Pod Save America. One of Barack Obama's longest-serving advisors, he was White House Director of Communications under President Obama from 2009 to 2013 and Senior Advisor to the President from 2013 to 2015. Now he's out with his new book titled Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. Dan Pfeiffer, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, we're recording this the day after Super Tuesday. Uh, Last I checked, I think that there's still some counting going on in California. But as of now, Biden has pulled ahead of Bernie Sanders in the total delegate count. Let me ask you, what do we make of this? Is is this now a neck and neck race? And looking ahead, who do you think stands to gain the most in the remaining primary states? Well, I think it it is neck and neck. But I think that, you know, stipulating that there's a lot of vote to come in in California 
but even if it looks like well if it looks like what we imagine Biden is in a very is in a strong position now which is pretty shocking consider where we thought he was about a week ago yeah because the Super Tuesday was both demographically and, ge- and geographically uh, a should have been a very strong day for Bernie Sanders, but Barack Obama, uh, sorry, that's a Freudian slip, but Joe Biden performed, <laughs> uh, uh, Joe Biden would appreciate that Freudian slip, I think, but <laughs> Joe Biden per- outperformed even the most optimistic expectations, winning states like mm-hmm. Minnesota, Maine, and Texas that Bernie Sanders expected to win. So Sanders has a lot of work to do to, uh, to be the nominee, and he's got to he's going to have to make some changes and grow his coalition. Mm-hmm. And Biden was helped by the endorsements of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. But one thing that some people were waiting for, which really would have tipped the scales in his favor, was an endorsement from President Obama before Super Tuesday. Obama has certainly made his opinions on Bernie known, but why didn't he just publicly come out for Biden? I mean, isn't it a little bit weird for him to not endorse his own VP? No, it's actually pretty traditional for the sitting president or or the most recent former president to not uh, endorse. He didn't endorse Hillary Clinton in 2016 either. Right. Um, Okay. And his view is, uh, and I think, as I understand his view, it is that at the end of this process, the party is going to have to unify. It is the only way we're going to beat Trump, whether that uh, we're either going to unify unify behind Biden or unified behind Bernie. And the person in the party with the best ability to help unify the party is Barack Obama. And if he were to mm-hmm. endorse now or put his thumb on the scale in a public way, I think it would reduce his capacity to do so. So huh. as I understand it, he's holding out uh, in order to play, let the process play itself out, let voters have their say, and then he can work to help put together the coalition it's going to take to beat Trump. Huh. Now, your podcast, Pod Save America, has also taken a neutral stance in the Democratic primary. I'm trying to remember, did you guys endorse in 2016? And was there much debate among you guys about whether or not to do so this time around? We did not endorse in 2016, but we actually didn't start until we we were back in those days, we were keeping it 1600. We were a slightly different podcast Mm -hmm. and we didn't even start uh, really talk. uh, We didn't start podcasting until pretty late in the primary Clinton had basically uh, mathematically sealed the certainly the the pledge delegate lead by then so what we really we were spending most of our time actually talking about Trump and what was happening in the Republican primary at the time um but you know obviously you know many of us had we knew Secretary Clinton we had worked with her John Lovett you know had been her speechwriter in the past so we had relationships there but it was like it wasn't sort of an issue this time we decided it, there wasn't we you know, we discussed it, but there wasn't much debate. We decided that the best way to talk about this primary would be to um, sort of let it play itself out. And frankly, all of us were a lot or a lot like a bunch of like many other Democratic voters, which is we care most passionately about beating Trump. And it's not patently obvious to us which candidate is the best to do that. So we're letting the voters weigh in and our listeners run the gamut from you know, Warren supporters to Pete supporters to Klobuchar supporters to Bernie to Biden. And so we're trying like our view is to try to be neutral, mm-hmm. but honest. You know, I'm sure yeah. we failed at times, but we wanted to at least like neutral in the sense that we weren't going to endorse someone, but be honest mm-hmm. when candidates did things we liked, be honest when candidates did things we didn't like. And that always has the, you know, sometimes that would anger and frustrate the our listeners who our supporters of those candidates and you know, maybe and sometimes I'm sure we got it wrong, but we, yeah. that was what we tried to do. And uh, hopefully we did it to the yeah. best of our ability. Now, Bernie still has a pretty good chance of running away with this thing. If Bernie wins the nomination, 
How did the Democrats run an effective campaign against Trump with Sanders at the top of the ticket? Oh, look, I want to be very clear that if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, myself and everyone at Pot Save America will be 100% behind him. We will do what it takes to encourage our listeners who were not you know, who we're not feeling the burn to get behind Bernie. Um, we will make the case for why he would do a good job and, why, and obviously why he's exponentially better than Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I look, I think Bernie can win and Democrats who say he can't win are ignoring uh, both the data and the lessons of the 2016 election. Right. That doesn't mean he right. will win. I would say the same thing about Joe Biden, but it we can't. Bernie Sanders can win. It would be it is incumbent upon the party if he is a nominee to unify behind him because mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders with a unified Democratic Party can win. Bernie Sanders with a Democratic divided with a divided Democratic Party cannot win. Mm-hmm. And so unity would be cr- cr- critically important, which is one of the reasons why you know Obama is taking the approach he's taking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, per your previous question. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like 2016 in the sense that. I don't know. It seems like there's something intangible about Bernie that we can't quite put our finger on that maybe he could pull it off. Maybe he might surprise everyone. Maybe he might be the secret mix of extreme policies and a little bit kooky that actually pulls it off, kind of like Trump did. Yeah, well, I think if he's a nominee, that's certainly like the thing that Bernie has going for him are the following in a race against Trump. One is I think he has a very strong economic message that mm-hmm. has populist appeal to a lot of the voters that Trump was able to peel off from Clinton. Mm-hmm. Two, Bernie Sanders is, whether you like him or you dislike him, does not seem to anyone like a typical politician. So it's harder for Trump to paint him as part of some sort of corrupt political establishment. Sure. And third, his supporters um, are very enthusiastic, and that is helpful in terms of organizing, in terms of communicating. And So he has real strengths in that election. He has weaknesses too, for sure, and Trump and you know, Trump, the Republicans would look to exploit those, but he certainly can win. He now has, like, we should be pretty clear that he has some very real challenges upcoming in this primary if he wants to be the nominee. And he, mm-hmm. like, in every state, he got between thirty and thirty-five percent is the ceiling, and he's never he did not perform better than that in any state yet in this primary. While Biden, in some states, was getting north of fifty percent, so Bernie Sanders was well positioned to be the nominee in a in a race with four and five candidates, in a race with essentially two candidates, it gets much more challenging. So yeah. he's going to have to figure out very quickly how to grow his support, and particularly among African American voters who are the most critical constituency within the party. And I guess now, the day after Super Tuesday, we can actually do a post mortem on Bloomberg. What do you think about his campaign? I mean, aside from the obvious fact that he spent a half billion bucks to win American Samoa and dropped out a day (laughs) later, is there anything to be learned from the way that he's been able to get under Trump's skin and kind of tweak Trump where he's most sensitive, especially with the digs at his supposed wealth and business acumen? Isn't Trump weakest when he gets his feathers a little ruffled? Yeah, there's definitely something about the fact that if Trump is in a Twitter fight with someone, those are you know, minutes, hours and days he's not spending making the case for his reelection. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of data that shows that sort of these petty fights that Trump gets in are um, problematic with a lot of swing voters who are sort of just exhausted by the constant drama in which he would just do his job. And so I think there is um, like his ability to do that is an asset. You know, I don't think that that is a sustainable and singular strategy for winning the presidency. I think ultimately (laughs) What his failure to do better had a lot more to do with two things. One, never a great fit for the Democratic Party electorate, right? Mm -hmm. This is someone who, despite being 
a true and legitimate hero on climate change and gun control is was either ambivalent or conservative on almost all the other all the other issues that Democrats cared about was a frequent critic of President Obama um, and critic of the things that Democrats like like an you know critic of the ACA who wanted Obama to cut Social Security and these are problematic positions for someone running to be the Democratic nominee that no that you know five hundred million dollars cannot solve and th- there was a strategic problem which was. To have any chance at all, he needed to be the in a one-on-one face-off with Sanders mm-hmm. and to sort of make himself this quote-unquote electable alternative. And he, by skipping the first four states, he sort of ensured that he would not be that one person in a one-on-one standoff. And then the final thing is the hit the debate performance in that first debate was disastrous. You can't pitch yourself as this electable alternative if you put in such a bad debate performance and that I think it was a fatal blow to the electability uh, aura that all those television ads had bought him. Going back to that ability that he had to sort of get under Trump's skin and hit him where many were afraid to hit him within the democratic party, there's been some debate about the effectiveness of the Obama strategy of they go low, we go high, especially when dealing with someone like Trump couple of weeks back, I had Rick Wilson on the show, and he was sort of GOP-splaining to the Dems that they need to be ready for a street fight and go after everything from Trump's appearance to his crooked kids. You acknowledge in here that Republicans have what you call the asshole advantage. Uh, So how low should your side go in this election? Well, Rick is a very smart guy, and I really enjoyed his book. I do disagree with him on this approach. It's not a question of low or high. It's just that Democrat, like, we have to be very tough with Trump. But we have a different electoral calculus than Republicans, which is sort of where I think Rick's experience comes from. Is Republic, he's trying to get Republicans elected. Republicans win. It's a simple math problem. Republicans win by turning out a ver- a base of very committed, enthusiastic voters. And it and trying to sow enough cynicism that the Democratic base, which it, which involves much more first time and periodic voters, keep to sow enough cynicism to keep them from coming out. So we can't just be I call it the book a paler shade of orange. That's that 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 math does not work for us. So we have to be tough with Trump, but it can't just all be about Trump. We have to give people a reason to turn out. And mm-hmm. so like I don't have any like there's nothing that I don't have any problem with like going at being tough about Trump and saying tough things about him. But if your strategy is just to pick a fight with Trump every day, you're going to lose the election. And in the last presidential election, it was sort of like Hillary and the Dems were fighting with one hand tied behind their back because they stuck to the generally accepted rules and norms of politics while Trump didn't. How can the nominee overcome this disadvantage this time around? Does he need to play by the rules, break them, rewrite the playbook or what? I think it's rewrite the playbook. I think Mm -hmm. Trump has a very strong ability to make people play his game, to respond to what he says, to draw out the four corners of the conversation and uh, and make you talk about the things he wants to talk about, which are things that incite his base and don't do anything to our base. And so what I think the Democrat needs to do is they have to call out the game. They can't get sucked. They can't follow Trump down all these rabbit holes. And that was one of the things that happened to the Democrats in 2016 is every day Trump would do something terrible. We would spend the whole day responding and telling people how terrible that thing was, even if the ter- even if the terribleness of that thing was self-evident to the voters. So I think you have to call out what he's doing and explain why. So when Trump, you know, like in 2018, when Trump 
sort of fosters this conspiracy about this caravan full of ISIS and MS-13 members coming towards the border to, uh, you know, hurt America. Like, you don't have to buy the premise of the conversation. You can say that Trump is trying to scare you, and here's what he's trying to distract you from. Here's why he wants to keep us divided. He wants to he wants to distract you from the fact that he wants to cut Medicare and Social Security to pay for a tax cut for uh, large corporations. He wants to distract you from the fact that he and his family are getting rich off your taxpayer dollars through his hotels and resorts. He's trying to distract you from the fact that he is making it easier for large corporations to pollute your water and air. And so it, it is like we have to learn the jujitsu of pivoting instead of letting mm-hmm. him tell us what we're going to talk about every day. He doesn't get, we can't let Donald Trump write the Democratic talking points every morning. And to the extent that there there is any strategy to what he's doing, he's been very good at you know, when, anytime he's in trouble with something, anytime he has a scandal or a policy issue that is seriously has the potential to affect him, He's able to throw out something that's just completely batshit crazy, but not particularly consequential, just to change the narrative. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. He's he has made himself the nation's assignment editor, and <laughs> we can't play we can't play that game. You advise in here that whoever the nominee is to hit Trump where he is strongest, which has always kind of been one of the basic tenets of political strategy. What do you see as Trump's biggest strengths, and how do you chip away at them this time? Well, I think it is there are two primary ones that help him expand his coalition. One is the economy, which creates a permission structure for people who do not like Trump to support him because they can say, well, he's boorish. He doesn't seem particularly good at his job, but the economy's strong. So why would I, why change horses mid-race? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one. And trade is the other one. Trade is sort of the one where he went against Republican orthodoxy by being a uh, an anti-trade uh, America firster, which is sort of bucking the wing, the Chamber of Commerce, Wall Street wing of the party. And on both of those, he is vulnerable. Obviously, just in the two weeks since the book came out, uh, the economy has seemed more rocky uh, as the market has been going up and down because of the coronavirus. And so we'll see how that plays itself out. But even in a scenario where the economy stays, or this, it turns out, you know, everything goes right. We get very lucky. Coronavirus um, gets handled and the economy returns to something like it was, um, you know, before a few weeks ago. Democrats have an opportunity here. And we have to, like, I argue Democrats have to reframe the question. If the debate is about whether the economy is, quote unquote, working, Trump is going to win because the traditional indicators of the economy, like the unemployment rate, are historically good. Democrats have to reframe the question for who is the economy working for, mm-hmm. and that the gains of the economy, particularly under Trump and due to his policies like the tax cut, have been most beneficial to corporations and well, and the wealthiest. And we have to, you know, there's an argument to be made there that I think uh, Democrats can make, which goes something along the lines of under Trump, corporations have never, large corporations have never made more money, paid less in taxes, wages have barely gone up, while the costs of healthcare, energy, housing college, retirement have skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. Trump, you know, Trump wants to cut Social Security and Medicare to ensure that everyone in America pays more for their Amazon Prime subscription than Amazon pays in federal taxes. And the big X factor that's emerging right now is the coronavirus in this election. Um, What do you think is the potential impact of that? I mean, nothing ever seems to stick to Trump. But once people start fearing for the safety and health of their families, do you think that that could be the thing that does them in? 
I'm hesitant to make any predictions about how these things play out. Like mm-hmm. the one of the things we one of the lessons we should definitely take from um, from the last few years of American politics is people have very short memories. So, sure. you know, impeachment was going to be the biggest thing in the world. Does anybody remember impeachment, even though it ended three weeks ago when <laughs> Trump shut down the government? We thought that would be the most decisive thing ever. Right. That, you know, that that and that got flushed down the memory hole. And so we'll have to see how this plays itself out. This is obviously the first true crisis Trump has faced, not of his making. Mm-hmm. And if they mishandle it, it can have real political consequences. But it's too early to say what that's going to mean. And I do like there is this question of does nothing stick to Trump or does everything stick to Trump? Right. And it may be that everything sticks to Trump because ultimately his approval ratings are really mediocre for someone who is presiding over what is on its face, a very strong economy. Mm-hmm. Like we're, and so like there are like, he currently things can change, but he's currently under the, his win number in all the States he needs to win to, in all the swing States. Mm-hmm. And so like the idea that like Ukraine impeachment, how mishandling the coronavirus, just being a general numbskull has not impacted his political prospects is I think, not necessarily correct and that there are like there are things pushing down on like the model would be a normal president with this economy would be cruising re-election and trump is yeah. not cruising a re-election even if he has advantages as we head towards one let me ask you this dan what do you think is the biggest thing that democrats misunderstand about the republican party under trump i think we think that donald trump took the republican party hostage Mm-hmm. That when once Trump leaves, they will have an epiphany and go back to normal. And right. Donald Trump is not an aberration. He's the logical extension of the Republican Party. The party has been on this inexorable path towards a white nationalist, racial grievance, authoritarian president since essentially uh, Richard Nixon and the Republicans adopted the Southern strategy after the passage of the Civil Rights Amendment, uh, Civil Rights Act. And so... This is where we are. The next president, next Republican president will be probably a smarter, less profane version of Trump, but will be a Trumpist for sure. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more when we come back in just a minute. And there have been a number of books over the past months about defeating Trump, but they almost seem to assume, like you said, that defeating Trump sort of solves the problem. You, on the other hand, dedicate much of this book to defeating Trumpism. Is it a situation where you just have to keep winning elections until they're just no longer viable? Or are you hoping that there will be some kind of a come to Jesus moment when the GOP cleanses itself? Or is that just wishful thinking? Well, I think you have to change the political incentives for the GOP, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I wrote this book because I believe that there's nothing more important than beating Trump, but beating Trump is not enough. And the Republicans can win the White House, they can control the Senate, they control the courts in a world in which democracy, as we commonly understand, is restricted. It's restricted through the geographic biases of the Senate and the Electoral College, but also Mm -hmm. through a very explicit strategy of voter suppression gerrymandering, rigging the courts. And if we don't take on those structural impediments to progressive power, then Republicans can see this way. The, the way to get Republicans to act differently is to create a political structure whereby Republicans have to appeal to the majority of Americans to succeed. Right now, they do not have to do that. They can get by with, with just appealing to a distinct minority of Americans. And if they were to have to, if they had to have a broadly appealing 
agenda, then Trumpism wouldn't work. Trumpism only works in a rigged political system. And so you have to, you have to unrig it if you want to get rid of Trumpism. And we were just talking about how many still want to believe that Trump is an anomaly in politics, but you contend in here that Trumpism, as you said, has been around for a while in one shape or a form. And you actually recall witnessing the early signs of what would eventually come to be known as Trumpism in your dealings with Republicans in the House and Senate during the Obama administration. Can you give us some examples of that? Sure. I think the the best example also involves Trump, which is, as everyone famously or infamously knows, Trump uh, spent much of the year 2011 pushing Trump's, pushing this uh, false racist conspiracy theory that Barack mm-hmm. Obama was born in Kenya and therefore ineligible to be president, that he did, he had faked his birth certificate, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and at the time, we kept waiting for Republicans. Like, Trump was not a Republican leader then. He was a reality, he was a clown. He was just, yeah. a, he was a clown famous for being famous. And sort of we're waiting for Republicans to rebuke Trump for this because this would be an easy way to demonstrate to voters in the quote unquote middle that they were that the party was not beholden to its most extreme elements. But they never did. They basically just stayed silent the whole time. And then even after Trump sort of got made a fool of by Obama and was sort of laughed off the stage in 2011, did Republicans say, Phew, thank goodness Barack Obama solved this Trump problem for us? No. They immediately began begging him for his endorsement if they were running for president in 2012. Right. And even Mitt Romney, who is now a obviously a hero of the Never Trump Resistance movement, yeah. uh, basically got on one knee and begged Donald Trump for his endorsement. And when Donald Trump gave it to him, they did a event together that looked a lot like the Celebrity Apprentice. And <laughs> ultimately, what that said was Republicans, they Mitt Romney wanted Donald Trump's endorsement, not despite the fact that Donald Trump was a racist, but because he was a racist, because it sent a signal mm-hmm. about the kind of Republican he would be. And that, I think, is a very, for all the positive things, for Mitt Romney's brave stance on impeachment, he, he believed that the path to winning the presidency was mobilizing racists, which is why he needed Donald Trump on his side. It's why he needed Steve King on his side and begged Steve King for his endorsement. Yeah. And that political calculus exists, existed in 2011, 2012, and is even more true today as the country has gotten more diverse. Republicans have needed to get more out of the their diminishing white base. Mm-hmm. And yet, sort of surprisingly, you bestow the mantle of worst person in American politics, not on Donald Trump, but on Mitch McConnell. Why does he deserve that title? Well, because Mitch McConnell was the person most responsible for someone like Donald Trump becoming president. Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell has from the very beginning been an anti-democratic politician and that he has, he is not, he's smart. Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump is not smart. Mitch McConnell (laughs) is smart. Yeah. And he has seen where this is going for a very long time. And that the only way Republicans could hold on to power was to change politics and restrict the political power of communities of color, of young people. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he he created an environment where Donald Trump could become president and mm-hmm. has done everything he can to ensure that Donald Trump stays president despite obvious crimes. And I talk in the book about how Mitch McConnell even refused to join, not just with the Obama administration, but the Obama administration and Paul Ryan to make a public statement about Russian interference because he knew it would help Donald Trump get elected and therefore, or at least help Donald Trump do well in the election and therefore help his Republican senators win election and help him stay Senate Majority Leader. And of course, we'll get to your feelings on Paul Ryan in just a bit. You certainly have some strong opinions on him. But first, let's talk about the Democratic Party organization. As it stands right now, is the DNC equally or better prepared than the RNC for 2020? 
No, they're definitely not better prepared. But that is also a product of being the party out of power, right? Mm-hmm. They're, Donald Trump filed for re-election five hours after he was inaugurated, and the and they have been working and preparing for this in a singular fashion without having to worry about a primary for three, you know, three plus years now. Um, I would say the de- the DNC at this point in 2020 is much better prepared than it was at this point in 2016, and have done, has done a very good job. But the Republicans are better funded, better organized, with a serious infra, uh, mm-hmm. institutional uh, and infrastructure head start. Mm-hmm. And you actually admit that the party all but collapsed during the Obama administration. How did that happen? Where did the Democratic Party come up short during the Obama era? Well, I think we tend in politics to assign too much importance to tactical and strategic decisions and not enough to larger um, demographic and cultural factors. Mm-hmm. And like th- so several things happened, um, some of which were in Obama's control and most of which weren't. One, the 2010 midterms was the most important election because it was the decennial election, which means it's the one that happens after the census, which means the people elected in that election get to draw the district lines and Republicans won because they always do well in the first election. The out party always does well in the first election after uh, a president's elected, just like the Democrats in 2018. Um, it also happened to be, uh, you know, two years after a very unpopular bailout of the banks that began under the Bush administration. Unemployment was near 10%. And then to make things even harder, the Supreme Court ruled uh, for the plaintiffs in Citizens United, allowing the Republicans who have more money to massively outspend the Democrats on the stretch. Mm-hmm. And so we lost that election. The same thing that happened at the same time America was undergoing the post-Obama uh, shift where a lot of the, you know, we had a lot of Democrat, more conservative Democrats in Southern state in very Republican districts that as the country polarized, particularly on racial lines in the Republican Party, we lost those. What I think is a fair thing to say about all of us who work the Obama administration is that we did not do enough after that election to focus on building political power up at the state level, which would have allowed us to undo the, some of the gerrymandering and voter suppression Republicans put in place in 2010, post-2010. Mm-hmm. And I think we were probably overly complacent heading into 2016 about the possibility that, could Trump, that Trump would win and therefore sort of believe that didn't fully comprehend how how close the elections were what actually was in 2012 and that we I don't think we just we, there was a fair of imagination on the fact that Trump could beat Hillary and therefore we did not do some things that would protect against that possibility. And in many respects, the battle between the Republicans and Democrats is a battle between voter suppression and voter expansion. Now, Stacey Abrams in Georgia has done a great job of raising awareness of this issue, but to some extent, she may be the exception. It seems to me that all too often, Democrats have been hesitant to talk about voter expansion. Do you know why that is? I, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I think Democrats are reticent to talk about things, talk about and do things that explicitly expand our political power. Republicans view political power as a means to Democrats believe, believe Democrats view political power as a means to a policy end, and Republicans view political power as an end in of itself. And so we've been we're very hesitant to do things. We have been in the past very hesitant to do things that we believe are right, but also benefit us politically. And but that is changing. Like that is definitely changing, and you're seeing that as more and more states are 
enfranchising um, formerly incarcerated individuals who've paid their debt to society. Um, you're seeing that as you know, nearly every state that has democratic control has put in place automatic voter registra- voter registration um, and are doing things to expand early vote and enact vote by mail. So we're doing things, but we have to be much more aggressive and we have to uh, be more strategic about how we do it. And one of the suggestions you have in here is that you say that you'd like to lower the voting age to 16. Well, let me ask you this. Yes. Do, do, do you trust the judgment of a 16-year-old or, or would you trust the judgment of a 16-year-old Dan Pfeiffer? <laughs> yes, I would trust. I was yeah. very mature 16-year-old. I mean, look, <laughs> okay. I like I, there are some ideas I put in the book that I don't think are in danger of happening right now, but I wanted to put in there because I think it's important that we be aggressive and we potentially we have the potential to shift the Overton window on what mm-hmm. is possible in the context of democratic reform. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, I look at their 16 year. There's the argument for 16 year olds voting is very similar to the argument for 18 year olds voting when we lowered the voting age a few decades ago, which is the th- issues that are most important now, most notably climate change have real impact on younger people. And True. We should be engaged, like whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you should theoretically want as many people in our process to engage in our process as possible. And if you get people voting at 16, they're more likely to vote at 18, 20, 22, et cetera. And I and I certainly trust 16 year old me or a bunch of 16 year olds out there more than a lot of other people are much older than 16. And so we don't have a maturity test on voting. And but if but if we think you're old enough to. Uh, drive a two-ton vehicle or have a bunch of car ways on the streets, then you can probably uh, make an educated decision on uh, who should lead the country or lead your state or lead your town. Mm-hmm. And you also call for D.C. and Puerto Rico to be given statehood. I wonder, why didn't Obama make a push to give D.C. statehood when he had a Democratic majority in the Senate and the House? Was there a window where he might have been able to pull that off? I, you know, that is a fair question. And I think, and as I talk about in the book, it wasn't even a thing that was even really discussed, even though Obama and most of the Democrats supported. I imagine that if we had pushed for it, you know, the 50, you know, we had, we briefly had 60 senators, but for most of that first two years, we had 59, which is when you need 60 to pass something under current constructs, which we should change. But I imagine, you know, that's 59 or 60, depending on the month, was you know, a quite conservative 60. You have Joe Lieberman in there. You have Ben Nelson. You have two senators from Arkansas, a senator from Alaska, a senator from Louisiana. And so I think it's a, like, I don't know whether it could have worked, but we should have tried. Mm-hmm. And we should absolutely, it, it is now, Barack Obama was a supporter of it in his 2008 campaign. It was a part of the platform in 2016. Everyone running for president supports it. It's insane that DC is not a state. I think for Puerto Rico, my view has always been, that's up to the people of Puerto Rico. If they choose statehood through whatever means they come to that decision, then we should make them a state. If they choose staying the way they are, that is up to them. If they choose to become independent, we should grant them that. We should give them uh, – they should have aut- autonomy in this decision. And just to give you a sense of how absurd the Puerto Rico thing is, is the people of Puerto Rico are American citizens. A person in Puerto Rico has no say in who's president. If that person moves to, I don't know, say Florida – and lives there long enough to establish residency, which is like three weeks, then they can vote for president. So, <laughs> like, it, it just makes no sense. We should, you know, at least make them part of the electoral yeah. college like DC is. Um, and if they want to be a state, they should be a state. Yeah. And isn't there something where uh, someone from Puerto Rico can run for president but not vote for president? 
Yeah, they, they, yes, they are eligible They're to be eligible. president, but they could not vote for themselves. Yes, that is correct. ironic. Um, one of the most interesting parts of this book is your chapter where you talk about the conservative media and you give time to Breitbart and Fox News, all the usual characters. But you also make a particular point to sound the alarm against one group that doesn't really get much attention. In fact, I'd imagine that most of the people listening right now don't even know Sinclair Media Group. Why are they so dangerous? Sinclair Media Group is a large conservative-owned media company that has been buying up local televisions and then turn, taking the local news and making it much more conservative, mm-hmm. and even hiring some former Trump aides to appear as on-air um, contributors. And based and sending like like there's a if you are a Sinclair station to date at least the history has been that they give you one national package you're supposed to air every day or every week that is basically could be coming directly from the White House. And the reason why I think Sinclair is dangerous is I think Fox, Breitbart, all these people are very dangerous and very radicalizing, but there was sort of an opt-in nature to it, right? You kind of know that what you're getting when you go there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Sinclair, you're just turning on the same TV station you've been turning on your entire life to watch the 6 o'clock news, 11 o'clock news, and you have this assumption that it is – Traditional news, right? I don't like to use the term objective necessarily, but it's traditional news and isn't pushing a specific ideological viewpoint. And they are sneaking that propaganda in through customs. And it's and we should be very Sinclair has bigger ambitions than just the stations it owns. They've tried to buy uh, Tribune Broadcasting, mm-hmm. um, which would make them the largest um, owner of controller of local TV stations. They're buying up regional sports networks um, where they have potential to do the same thing. And so this is this very dangerous under the radar effort to radicalize Americans with right wing propaganda. And we have to call it out and then uh, bring attention to it and even uh, use the powers of the FCC when we're in the White House to examine exactly what they're doing and make sure that it adheres to the law. Well, the final step in this book is you say that we need to protect the country against a future Donald Trump. If, God forbid, another Donald Trump-like figure does get elected, how can we bolster our democracy so that this person won't be able to abuse his power in office and undermine our institutions to the degree that Donald Trump has? Right. I think too much. Donald Trump has sort of shown a light on the fact that much of the American political system is based on some faulty ideas. One, uh, that it de- it is dependent upon two parties who both operate in good faith, even if they disagree on the issues. It A lot of things that, we, it, it, it depends on norms and traditions as opposed to laws and rules. And so to give you some examples, the conflict of interest rules that prevent regular me- members of the federal government from having a financial interest in the things they rule on do not apply to the president. And that hasn't been a problem today because presidents have divested from their financial interests. Jimmy Carter famously put his peanut farm in a blind trust, so there would be no questions right. about whether he was making pro-peanut policy decisions. Um, but Donald <laughs> Trump did not do that, has not done that, and there is no law stopping him. Every presidential candidate since Nixon has released their taxes because that has been a tradition and there's been a belief that uh, political pressure from the public forces you to do it. Donald Trump has not released his tax returns. The laws that prevent you from using f- taxpayer resources to campaign for federal for federal office are do not apply to the president. And therefore, when Donald Trump 
uses an official speech that all of us paid for the fuel for Air Force One and the and the bunting on the stage when he uses that to to campaign for re-election. There's nothing we can do about it. And so and I think and then fundamentally just we have to recognize that even before Trump there has been this nonstop accrual of federal of presidential power. And it's in part yeah. Congress's fault because Congress has been willing to kick the hard decisions to and the politically precarious ones to the president. And that this is a bipartisan problem. And so my view is that Democrats have to take our norms and, and traditions and make them laws. And we have to take steps to curb the ability of a president to operate without checks and balances, which is what Trump currently does. And he is like he is refusing to um, respond to subpoenas, and he's getting away with it. And there should be accountability and rules and laws that make that make that less likely. And it's and I think it's very important for a Democratic president with a Democratic Congress to be the ones who put these rules into place. Because mm-hmm. if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. And I actually think it'd be good politics to be a president who would actively look to curb their own power. Yeah. Um, because if we decry all of Trump's imperialism, his authoritarianism, his flaunting of the rules, and then we don't do something about it when we have power because it may uh, may, may make our life harder, then we're, we're going to um, sow a lot of cynicism in the electorate in a way in which that, that will be electorally detrimental to Democrats in a way that it has not been for Republicans. Mm-hmm. Some good advice. Well, before we go, you throw in a bonus chapter in your book that's sort of an extended rant on Paul Ryan. <laughs> now, I've heard you go off on him on Pod Save America before, and even though he's gone back to Wisconsin and probably out of politics for good, you still seem to have this very visceral reaction to him. Let me ask you, of all the whole rogues gallery of crooks and enablers around Trump, what is it about Paul Ryan? Is it the workout photos or what? Why does he drive you crazy? (laughs) It is not the workout photos, although those are very cheesy. I mean, look, look, I do not, if someone wants to pick another least favorite person in Republican Party to go after, like, I cannot disagree with you if you say you hate Marco Rubio or Devin Nunes or Jared Kushner or Steve. Like those are yeah. all pretty legitimate choices. Paul Ryan bothers me the most because Paul Ryan is the hero of this story in his own mind. And he's, <laughs> he is operating on a different plane from reality. And, and so he has always, he has annoyed me for years. Uh, his behavior in the Trump administration is inexcusable. I do not believe he's done with politics. I think he is going to be running for governor of Wisconsin really? or Senator of Wisconsin in uh- our near future. Uh, I think we were we are not done with Paul Ryan. He's just taking a break to try to make some money and try to cleanse the stain of Trumpism <laughs> off his soul, which I the point of this chapter is to maybe in some small way keep him from doing. And the funny thing about this chapter is I when I was writing this book, I was trying to maximize I do a lot of obviously travel for Positive American. We have a lot of long flights. And so I try to maximize all of them. That's like five hours you know, for flying across country that I can just work and no one's supposed to bother me. And I was stuck on a flight and I was uh, writer's block. Like I just could not put words on a paper. And I was feeling the pressure of like every minute, this is another minute I'm not going to get back of my incredibly important flight time to get some sort of my, like I'm on like a, you know, you got to turn this book in, you got to, you're on like on a word schedule, right? Like yeah. if I don't write, X number of words this week, I'm going to be behind. That means I got to write X plus Y next week, right? Or whatever. And so in order to sort of open the spigots, I just started writing Paul Ryan rant because it came most naturally. And 
ultimately when we finished the book, it didn't really fit anywhere. Like it didn't like it didn't yeah. work in the context of the book. And so it just felt wrong to throw it away. So we just stuck it at the end, uh, which is sort of like a bonus. It's like an after credit sequence in a Marvel right. movie for <laughs> the listeners, the readers of the book who are positive American listeners who uh appreciate the Paul Ryan who or I guess yes. maybe they appreciate the Paul Ryan rants and miss them because they come less frequently now that he has slunk <laughs> off the national stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I found it very rewarding personally, so I'm glad you Oh good. Well that. then then mission accomplished. Excellent. <laughs> well again, the book is called Untrumping America: A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. Dan Pfeiffer, thanks so much for talking with me. Absolutely, thank you. Thanks again to Dan Pfeiffer for joining me on the podcast. Order his new book, Untrumping America, a plan to make America a democracy again on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Listen and subscribe to Dan's podcast, Pod Save America, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen, and follow him on Twitter at, at Dan Pfeiffer. Today's episode is brought to you by Kronos. Kronos provides HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support, motivate, and engage them. They put HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. Learn more about Kronos HR, payroll, talent, and time at kronos.com slash hrswagger. That's kronos.com slash hrswagger. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. <laughs>